1: The glory of Christ in his sufferings, next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. As we saw yesterday here on Abounding Grace, we took note of the fact that humiliation and exaltation go hand in hand for the believer in Christ. The glory found in the suffering of Christ, the juxtaposition of many of these euphemisms that you and I are familiar with, find their reality in the cross, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're focusing on here today. Won't you join us? Again, we're in Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 38, with the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Jesus asked the Father for something else. He knows that Satan is only the second cause of this sifting and that God is the first cause. Now, do you understand second causes and first causes? What is the second cause for beans to grow? It is rain, sunshine, minerals in the soil. What's the first cause? God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and supplies the minerals in the soil so the beans can grow. What is the second cause in the sifting of the the apostles? It is Satan. What is the first cause, the ultimate cause of this sifting? It is God. In other words, Satan is the sieve. And guess who's holding the sieve? It is God. God. Now, don't forget that in your life. There will be all kinds of things that Satan is going to throw at you. He's he's going to try to get you down. He's going to try to discourage you, defeat you, lead you into depression, despair, separate you from Christ. And you are going to pray, Oh Lord, cause Satan to stop. And God is not going to answer. Why? Because ultimately... It is God that is using Satan in your life to make you more dependent upon him. To help you and me see our weaknesses. And how easy it is for us to fall by the wayside. And how scary it is to be shaken. To show us the necessity of faith. And our utter dependence upon God. So Jesus turns to God and he asks him that in the midst of this shaking and sifting and testing and satanic assault, that their faith may not die. In Jesus' high priestly prayer to God in John 17, 15, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I don't ask you, Lord, to take them out of the sieve. This evil world, with all of its seduction and all of its threats and all of its intimidations and all of its persecutions, I'm not asking you to rapture them out of this world. Keep them in the sieve. But while they're in the sieve, keep them from Satan having his way with them and make them dependent entirely upon you. That is the prayer that he prays for you and me. And I don't know about you. But sometimes I'd just like to be raptured out of this messy world. Sometimes I pray, Lord, I've had enough of this Eve. And God says, no, you have not. He says, I love you too much. I want to get the chaff out of your life. Satan wants to get the wheat out of your life. I want to get the chaff out of your life. And beloved, guess who is going to win? I like the story. I've told you this once before about the little country woman who was praying. She had a small house. She had no money, and she had just finished eating her last bit of food. So she kneels down by her chair in reverence, and she says, Lord, you know I don't have any more money. I don't have any food in the pantry. I am utterly dependent upon you. Would you please provide me with more food? If you don't, I'll have nothing to eat. Two teenage boys are walking by her window, and they heard her praying. They decided to play a joke on her, so they rushed back home to their house, and they got a bowl of beans and cornbread, and they put it upon the windowsill while she was praying. And then they knelt down under the window, and that little old lady finished her prayer, and she looked up, and there were the beans and the cornbread. She started crying and praising the Lord and said, Lord, that was fast. I thank you for sending this great blessing and for answering my prayer. At this point, the two teenage boys come up from under the window and they start laughing at her and said, God didn't answer your prayer. We're the ones that did it. She looked at them and said, Satan might have brought it but God sent it. And that's the way we have to live our lives. Don't worry about it. You just stay close to the Lord. Satan is the seed, but God is the sifter. You see, Satan wants to keep the chaff and blow away the wheat. Christ wants to retain the wheat and take the chaff out of it. By sifting, Satan wants to suppress the good by the evil. Christ also, by sifting, would have you overcome evil with good. And again, guess who wins? Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And anything that Jesus prays and asks God for, God always gives. Let me give you a couple of lessons from this incident. Preservation of faith is the product of grace. Not only is your faith a gift of God's grace, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because God changed your heart and gave you the gift of faith, enabled you to do what you could not do in and of yourself, and that is believe. But now the preservation of your faith, the reason you keep on believing, is not because of the strength of your resolve... It's not because you're a strong Christian. Your faith continues in this world because of God's grace. God's grace gave it to you, and God's grace continues it and causes it to persevere in you. And the Lord Jesus Christ prays that your faith will not fail. So don't trust in your faith. You trust in Jesus. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ and thank Him for everything each day, for praying for you that your faith will not fail. Well, what is the basic issue here in Satan wanting to sift the disciples? The basic issue is whose property are the disciples? To whom do the disciples belong? Satan is desperately struggling for a deed of ownership, said one commentator, to those people whom Christ purchased with his own blood. You see, Satan has no right over you. Satan cannot keep his property to himself. Jesus can come into his kingdom and plunder him while Jesus is able to keep his property for himself. Satan may challenge you, but the reason he is allowed to challenge you by Jesus' permission is to push you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus is telling Simon at this point in his life is that he needs a mediator. Now, he's really not going to understand that until a little later, but he is telling him he needs a go-between. You need an intercessor. You need someone to pray for you. You're not going to make it in this life on your own. You need a mediator who can bring God to you and you to God. All of Jesus' prayers suppose His mediatorial work. His prayers presuppose His atonement. The Lord Jesus Christ prays for us because He shed His blood to purchase us for Himself. And He knows His prayers will be heard and answered for you and me because of what He did for us on that cross. Simon needed a mediator. You and I need one as well. But did you notice Peter's impetuosity? Jesus said, "See, Satan is going to try and sift you like wheat. Verse 33, Peter says, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and go to death. How dare Peter say he is able? That is what he's saying here. I'm able to stand firm, God. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to let you down. Peter is too sure of himself, too sure of his own strength and his own ability to be loyal. He's absolutely unwilling to believe that he will become unfaithful and have to repent. He is is impulsive and impetuous as ever, and his fatal self-confidence and his fall should be a permanent and powerful warning to every one of us. Never arrogantly depend On your own strength. Don't be so sure of yourself, beloved. Do not ever put confidence in yourself. Here is what one man said. Peter's failure was for his own benefit and for the benefit of all the disciples. While the master would not prevent Satan's attack, he would pray for Peter's faith not to fail. Those while Peter, thus, while Peter was destined to fall, his faith would not. Jesus, therefore, predicted not only Peter's failure, but also his restoration. And when he turned back, Peter was then to strengthen his brethren. Peter could not be used when he was too great, too self-confident, too self-seeking. But after he failed, after God broke him, after he experienced the grace of God, then Peter could lead men. It was not greatness that Peter needed to experience, but grace. Peter protested, insisting that Jesus' words would never come true, and that he would remain faithful, even in prison and death. And in the final analysis, Peter was calling Jesus a liar. Peter was willing to trust his own feelings of love and self-confidence rather than trust in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his future, unquote. Be careful. This is easy to do. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are dead wrong. I love you so much, and I feel so close to you. My feelings are not going to betray me. He believed his feelings before he believed the word of Christ. Be careful in your own life, beloved. Put your trust in Christ and his word alone. Well, the last conversation is quite a controversial one today. He is here preparing his apostles for a mission in a hostile world, a dangerous world. Let me read to you verses 35 through 38. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. Why? Because it was predetermined to be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, Transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look here, are two swords. And Jesus said to them, that's enough. Now, what do you have here? Remember, Jesus sent his apostles out on an earlier mission, preaching the gospel. We see this in Luke chapter 9. And he commanded them, not to take any suitcases, don't take any sandals, don't take a purse, because you're going to be hospitably received wherever you go in Galilee and Jerusalem. Don't take anything. But now the situation's different. Now Jesus has sent his apostles into a world without his physical presence. He would no longer be there to perform miracles in their defense or on their behalf. He is sending them now into a dangerous and hostile world where they will be despised and persecuted, and it is necessary that they be thoroughly equipped and armed at whatever cost with an unbreakable courage and determination in Christ so they would not fall in the struggle. All loyal followers of Christ in this world will unavoidably receive scorn and hatred from those who reject Christ. You can count on it. And if it hasn't happened yet, it will. We live in a hostile and dangerous world. Expect persecution from those who reject Christ. And the way to stay loyal in this world as we live, as we live in it is to be spiritually equipped with His power and armed with His word. And be able to protect yourselves and your family and your church from those who would do us physically harm. You know, I've read several commentaries over the past week on verse 36. And he said to them, but, not, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his robe and buy one. You should read the foolish things that have been written on this verse by commentators. They all try to say, he's not talking about a literal sword. Of course, he's talking about a literal money belt, and he's talking about a literal suitcase, but he's not talking about a literal sword. I mean, Jesus wouldn't tell you to arm yourself. And you see, that's their basic argument. The basic argument around all this ridiculous verbiage is, this isn't literal because Jesus would not command you to carry a dagger. The sword here is not some long William Wallace sword. It's actually a dagger. So you have all these people who say, this is just a mysterious text. As to what Jesus meant when he told his disciples to carry a purse and a suitcase. And if you don't have a dagger, sell your overcoat to purchase one. Because you're really more likely to need a dagger than you will an overcoat. Oh, this is so mysterious. Jesus wouldn't say something like that. Except he did say it. This is not a metaphorical sword. Didn't, Jesus didn't all of a sudden slip over from literal objects to a metaphor. He said, this world is so dangerous that I want you to take a dagger for self-defense when you need it. Now keep in mind, this is a Christian dagger. It's not a Muslim dagger. You've got to make that distinction. What is the purpose of Muslim daggers and sword? To conquer the world for Islam by cutting off the heads of children and photojournalists. That is not the purpose of a Christian dagger. The, pers- pur- the purpose of this Christian dagger is for self-defense only. Remember just a little later when Peter had, had a dagger. He cut off a guy's ear and Jesus had to rebuke him. But he didn't say, Peter, what in the world are you doing with that sword? Throw it, that sword away. You're not supposed to have a sword. We're all pacifists here. No. He said, Peter, put up your sword, put it back in its sheath. That is not its purpose. We are not to advance the kingdom of God with a sword that's made of metal. We are to advance the kingdom of God with a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But you will need a dagger to protect yourself, Peter, and self-defense in this dangerous world. Then Christ quotes Isaiah 53, 12. It is written that he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, What is written about me is reaching fulfillment. So when Jesus quotes this passage, he is showing us that he understands the meaning of his death on the cross. And if you remember, we went through Isaiah 53 when I started talking about the final days of Christ and his suffering, because the Bible wants us to understand the death of Christ in terms of Isaiah 53, where he would be identified with criminals die as criminals in the place of criminals. But he is also using that verse to teach his apostles something about the viciousness of the world that they'll be entering without him physically among them with his miracles. If this world is evil enough to crucify its creator as as a common criminal, what will it do to you, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? The same question you and I must ask ourselves and teach our children and our grandchildren to ask. If this world is evil enough to kill its creator, children, grandchildren, and evil enough to treat Jesus as a commoner criminal, what is it going to do to you? Jesus said to the apostles, prepare to defend yourselves. Quit being preoccupied with popularity and prestige and start thinking about persecution and preparing yourself for it. Now, when Peter said, Lord, we've got two swords, there are 11 of us, and we've got two swords. I know you said each one of us should have a sword, but we've got two. So Jesus says and discusses, okay, that's enough, let's change the subject. What is he actually saying? He says, this world is so dangerous, I want each of you to get a sword, and if you have to sell your overcoat to get one, I want each one of you to do it. Peter says, it's two enough. And Jesus basically says, I just told you that each one of you are to get a sword. Peter, this world is going to be a lot more dangerous than you think it is going to be. Uh, let's just move on. Teach your children these things. Don't let them be naive. Teach your children that we advance the kingdom of God with the sword of the Spirit and we are to protect our wives and our families and our church by whatever means necessary. Jesus said, Arm yourself in this evil world. The Jesus described in these four conversations is the Jesus that really was and really is today. It's not a figment of someone's imagination. Liberals like to make a distinction between the Jesus of history that was just a Galilean wise man and the Christ of faith with all of his miraculous powers. But there is no such dichotomy. The person we read about here that was humiliated for us and who had this royal authority and divine control over the future is the Christ in whom we rest, the only Jesus there is. Understand, beloved, that he knows everything about you, your motives, your dreams. He knows and controls your future. Everything about your future is in his hands. He even controls your sin for his purpose. He uses evil and my and your portrayal of him for our benefit without condoning that evil or that betrayal in us. He holds us responsible for all the evil in our lives, and if repentance and faith do not come in our experience, then we will experience the predestined consequences of our sin. Jesus was deeply humiliated for our salvation, so we wouldn't be that deeply humiliated. And he exerts his authority to protect us from evil and to bring the destiny that he has planned for us in our lives. And he prays for us every single day. Do you know what Jesus prays for you? I'd like you to go home today and read John 17. The greatest encouragement in in my life is to know that God loves me so much that he prays for me every single day of my life. And as long as Jesus prays for me, I am safe. So rejoice that Jesus is praying for you. And then make the petitions of John 17, that he is praying for you, your own petitions. Because, beloved, if you are praying the same things for yourself that Christ is praying for.